0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome or welcome back to the JKWD podcast. Hope you're having a great day. If you're not having a great day, you're about to. Kelvin, how you doing?
1: I was waiting for what was next after that. I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Sitting here in lovely Liverpool, New York, man. And I tell you what, everything's looking good today. The the sun is shining. The clouds are, 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 are Bouncing around, there's no inclement weather, and it looks just perfect outside. And after we finish this recording, I'm gonna go out and see if I'm right. Sweet, life is good. How about you? Well, I'm
0: wonderful. I woke up super super early. I was out uh, walking the dog at 4:30 and drinking <laughs> my coffee, and went out for seven miles. I said I was only going to do six, but it was so nice out. I did another one, and. Uh, You still got back in time to get the uh, wee human out of bed and give her some breakfast and take her and the puppy on another walk and and, uh, doctors and daycare and made it back in time to
1: see your smiling face. (laughs) There you go. I'm so glad you did that uh, because the podcast wouldn't have been the same without you.
0: I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you on that one today. We have Chris Field on the podcast disruption. Chris on the social medias, but of course you can head over to jkwdpodcast.com. Look at show notes for this. You don't have to remember that. Uh, Chris is a he's a guy, man. He um, he's in Central Texas, College Station, where um, what's there? Texas A&M, I think, and. Um, Texas A and University of Texas. One of the big ones is there. <laughs>
1: color me. <color, And>, uh,
0: <laughs> I probably should have kept my mouth shut on that until I until I looked it up, but oh well. <laughs> too late now.
1: <laughs> well, you said Texas. That's a good start.
0: Yes, I'm in the right state. <laughs> anyway, he's uh, he has a nonprofit that looks to end child slavery, child trafficking in Ghana. He. Uh, we, we talk a lot about, well, he, t- he talks a lot about disrupting the the system uh, in kindness and, and in empathy. And uh, you know, he, he challenges us to, to just do better, you know, just feel a little more, be a little more empathetic, be a little more kind. And it doesn't have to be. You don't have to change the world doing it. You just you know, make somebody's day better.
1: And that's how you, it starts. He he gives a very uh, compelling uh, exercise for developing empathy. Out
0: yeah, he does.
1: Yeah. So, and it's not something I've considered before. So it's definitely worth worth listening to. And feeling.
0: Yeah, and uh, we kept him right about the hour. We told him we were going to keep him. So, uh, yeah, you got the, and and he did just about all the talking. I think between Calvin and I, we might have we might have put in four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're gonna get you're gonna get Chris Field and in, in all his Chris Field today. Uh, <laughs> so, let's. Uh, let's play some music and on the other side of it you'll hear chris all hey. right Podcast where we talk about better humanhood and teach you how to dominate
1: your world. You ready? Here we go. Hey, good morning. Good morning. so guys. How you doing today? I'm doing awesome. How are you too? Wonderful. Awesome is good. I like awesome. I accept. <laughs>
2: Good. Thank good. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I don't know what I would have done otherwise.
1: <laughs> there you go. Good to see you. Welcome.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much. Good to be here.
0: Where are we finding you this morning, Central Texas, or?
2: Yeah. I'm in College Station, Texas.
0: Awesome. Cool. Well, normally we uh, start by asking you to uh, introduce your mission and tell us why that's your mission. We'll wander on from there.
2: Awesome. Yeah, let's do it. So my mission is to convince every single person I meet that they are capable of doing far more good than they thought possible and that they have every tool they could possibly need right now to start doing it. So that's really it in a nutshell.
0: How did you come across this?
2: You know, I've been doing as much good as I can for a lot of years without thinking about it in those terms. It just felt natural to me that when you saw a problem, you responded to it and started doing that really probably I can trace that back to when I was about 19 years old and I ran for mayor of my hometown and started this. I didn't I didn't win that election, by the way. I placed third out of five, but it It started this path for me that when everybody said, well, you know, this thing needs to be done or someone should do that, then my response was, well, why not me? And so I've been doing that for a long time. I just thought, I just kind of assumed everybody (laughs) functioned like that. And then the more I started talking to people, as I got the opportunity to meet more people and tell them about my story, more and more and more, I heard people saying things like, gosh, I wish I could fill in the blank or, wow, you know, you're so lucky that you get to, I thought, man, this is so weird. What is it that's happening that makes people feel like they're not capable, that there's some, some achievement you have to unlock or some extra video game level you have to get to that before you're allowed to do good. Like what a crazy, what a crazy thought. It felt like everybody was waiting. It's like they were waiting for permission, uh, to, to go and do to do more good, to make the world a better place. And so I thought, well, that's silly. Uh, let's see if we can't sort of light a fire under people and, and help convince them and empower them to believe that they have everything they need right now. And they just got to start doing it.
0: Did you find an answer to to why people seem stopped on that?
2: I think there's two main reasons. I think the first is people feel like they don't have enough time. So it's why we hear people talking about, Well, when I get to dot, 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 right? When I graduate college, when I have, when I get married, when I have kids, uh uh-oh, when my kids have to get older, my kids have to get out of college, oh, I'm close to retirement now, maybe when I retire, well, now I'm out of energy, you know, it's like, we're always moving the goalposts. And so I think the first thing is helping people understand that it doesn't take nearly as much time. As they think, as I obviously allude to in my book, 14 minutes a day, 1% of our day is plenty of time to do meaningful good every single day, especially when stacked on each other, like compounding interest when we compound that time. And the second objection I realize we have to overcome is people don't feel qualified. Uh, They feel like there's somebody else that would do a better job than them. I feel like there's somebody else that's more talented or more skilled or has more money. And so I feel like there's a lot of kind of people feeling imposter syndrome, you know, like, well, I, you know, there's surely somebody who's more qualified to do that than me. And the answer is, of course, there's somebody more qualified than you. And There's also people less qualified than you and a whole bunch of people aren't doing anything. So just show up and do your best work. And over time, it's going to always shake out to be a positive. Right. So let's uh well,
0: I'm sorry, good. Let, let's start with a definition
1: of good.
2: Yeah, great. You? Yeah, it's a great question. Nobody's ever actually asked me that, to be totally honest. So I don't have like a Webster's dictionary or something open in front of me. So when I talk about doing good, disrupting for good, my first book, or a billion hours of good, my second book, to me, that is intentionally making someone else's life better so that can be the tiniest little thing you actually smile at somebody you speak you look in the eye and speak to the person who hands you your coffee in the morning at when you go through the drive-through at starbucks or as big as going across the world and trying to rescue kids out of slavery i mean there's there's so many so many things that, that can be done that would qualify as good, but just to simplify it, making somebody else's life better.
1: Kelvin, hey, I cut you off. What were you going to, um, I was just going to add, cause you, you look like a very young man. <laughs> so when, how, where, where in life were you when you, when you came up with this philosophy, when you just started, Oh, of course I can do good. I've been doing good all my life. You know, where where were you in your, in your life's journey there?
2: Yeah. So I'm 38 now. So, I mean, I wrote disrupting for good when I was 35 and I mean, I I feel like I was on this journey a few years, you know, so in 2010, I started a nonprofit doing anti-child trafficking work in Ghana, Africa.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I was 27 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. Didn't know anybody with money, quit my job, started this nonprofit. We had a six-month-old baby at home. And for me in that moment, it was like, look, one day my kids are going to look at me and say, hey, dad, when you found out there were child slaves in the world, what did you do? And and I think about this a lot. I think about this a lot with questions of race in America. There's a whole generation. I live in the South. There's a whole generation of really good, kind folk that they can't look their children or grandchildren in the eye and answer that question when they say, hey, uh, when you saw how differently people of color were being treated, what did you do about that? And people would need to look away, a lot of people in the South, and start giving all these explanations. Well, see, back then it was, you know, and it's like, no, no, that's not what I asked you, (laughs) right? I asked when... When you saw something you knew was wrong and you could say it was normal. You could say it's just the way things were, but in your gut, you knew that was not okay. How did you respond? And for me, that became about child trafficking, human trafficking. And, and I thought, you know, I may fail miserably here, but one day when my kids do ask me that question, I'm going to be able to look them in the eye and I'm going to be able to say like, Hey, when I saw, and learned about that i responded by showing up and by trying to do a really hard thing and even if it cost me something and and i knew if i failed that at least i'd be able to to answer that question with integrity and and of course thankfully it hasn't failed and we've had some success rescued now 201 children out of human trafficking and reunited them back into their families but But even if that hadn't been the case, even if we'd never helped one single kid, I wanted my children to know when people are hurting, our family legacy, our story is that we show up and we don't have to do that in Ghana. We could do that in our own neighborhood. We can go do that when I'm the chaplain at a local hospital, the on-call chaplain, and I dread getting those calls. And it's, it's brutal. It's brutal work to walk into a family of strangers who are can't breathe because their father just took his last breath and you don't know these people and they don't know you. And they look, they turn to you and ask you for answers that you don't have, that no human being could possibly have. Mm -hmm. But I show up there because that's who I want to be. I want to be a person who shows up in people's moments of greatest pain. And so for me, Ghana really started that. I mean, I was 27, like I said, and I had 50, 60, 70 year olds who were millionaires and uber successful by every measure They were saying things to me like, man, I wish I could do something like that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what is it? Like, if anything, I'm just stupid enough to show up in Ghana. Like there is zero qualification except that I bought a plane ticket and took a week off of work and showed up. Like that was the qualification. And it was just crazy to me that other people didn't feel, you know, again, it was like, they were waiting for permission, right. For somebody to say like, Hey, you could do this too. <laughs> like you could do this. Like there's nothing that keeps, you know, makes me unique or, or special. And so I think for me, Kellen, that was really, it was when I, people much older and more successful <laughs> than me started saying things like, gosh, I wish, gosh, I wish. And I was like, wow, that's crazy there's a lot of people that feel like they're not capable of doing, doing good. Like they're just kind of waiting for permission and okay. If I'm the one that's going to give them needs to give them permission, which doesn't make sense, but sure. I'll I'll give them permission that yes, you have everything you need right now to do more good than you ever thought possible.
1: It's
0: a matter of, of figuring out that first step for a lot of people too. And is, well, if the first step is buying a plane ticket to Ghana, well, okay, I can do that. And then wind right. back. I need a passport. I need a visa. I need right. whatever shots I need to go to Ghana. But right. um, how do you, how do you pick the battle? You, and what I mean is you, know, your mission deals with um, child slavery in Ghana. Um, you know, the, Groups like fight for, the, fight for the Forgotten and Charity Water are, you know, building wells in, in developing countries, you know, you know, a water issue. You know, there are, um, you know, people dealing with, you know, sex trafficking and um, uh,
2: there are a million. Yeah.
0: There are a million bits of problems, right? And um, we can't fight them all. You know, we as individuals, you know, like one individual is not taking on all the problems. Right. How how do you you pick?
2: So this is another place where I think we have paralysis by analysis, right? Mm -hmm. We overthink this. So one of the things that's true for me is that a lot of people see our work in Ghana as kind of the hallmark and like, that's what they know me as. I was 19 when I started working at a camp in Texas for uh, kids who couldn't afford to go to camp, basically. And some some really hard stuff happens at that camp. I mean, a lot of kids who show up with a lot of pain, a lot of abuse, um, just hard lives. And I was... I actually was hired to be the director of that camp when I was just 19 years old, freshman in college, ended my freshman year of college, which was nuts by that board of directors. I still think they were crazy, even though it worked out great. But for me, that, that ignited, that that was the first passion for me was young people in America who are starting off at a significant deficit of what I experienced as a young man. So my, my normal life, what I perceived that everybody just in my innocence and naivety, I thought, well, everyone has a mom and dad and articulate this, you know, I knew better. It was like, well, I have a mom and a dad and I have food and I have clothes and I have people who care about me. And I have uh, people that are willing me to go on and achieve great things in my life and pushing me to that end and calling out the best of me. And, calling out the worst in me and telling me to do better. And, and it was at that camp. I was like, wow, like I had so many advantages, so much privilege that I never realized that I had in big ways and small ways. And as that began to shape me and I came home from, from my first summer of working at that camp and I immediately got a job at the boys and girls club and started hanging out with kids every afternoon at the boys and girls club started driving the bus to pick them up after school. And then that translated into going and hanging out with them and their families on the weekends. Really in many ways, our, our club is predominantly um, black children and families. And I really became like integrated into the black community in my, in my uh, hometown. I was invited to preach at black churches. I was invited to keynote MLK celebrations. I was invited to soul food luncheons to, to try oxtails and neck bones and collard greens. And, and it was like I was an honorary member of the, of the Black community. And because I was invited into that space so graciously, so graciously, I mean, they were ridiculously gracious to me. I feel like I had this crazy opportunity that most white people don't have, especially white 19-year-olds, to really live live very, very briefly but to, to start to see the world in the tiniest, tiniest way from the standpoint of my Black friends, never the full experience, of course, and not even close, but in the tiniest, tiniest way, I began to think about the world in a different way because of them. And so that was really my passion for a lot of years was um, we have a lot of people in our communities that... They don't have the, the 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 megaphone that I sometimes have they don't they definitely have a voice um, but they may not have the microphone they may not have been given the stage I mean I would have been given an opportunity to tell their story or to tell their truth and so so I really sought that out and so so I did a lot of work in urban America a lot of work in um, with low-income families and so Josh a lot of times when people see the work in Ghana they're like wow you just woke up one day and decided to fly to Ghana. It was like, you know, kind of, but for years and years and years and years, I'd been listening to the marginalized, listening to the disenfranchised, um, cheering on my friends of color that were telling me stories I'd never heard before. And so when I heard about a new group of people that I'd never heard of before that didn't have anyone to tell their story, It wasn't that crazy of a stretch for me to show up, to listen to them, to get to know them, to literally do the same thing, walk into their communities, sit under their mango tree, eat their food um, and to become a friend. And then to say, wow, uh, I want to help. I want to do anything I can to help tell your story so that more people uh, might be compelled to become advocates and friends and partners in in doing good. Um, with you and for you. So, so let me summarize that by saying this. We're surrounded with opportunities to do good. The way we do good and the way we become more generous is by exercising our good and generous muscles and sitting around waiting for the perfect opportunity is hogwash. It's not happening, but doing good when it's in front of you for whoever that happens to be, no matter what color they happen to be, no matter how old they happen to be, no matter where they happen to be from, you do that a couple hundred th- times, thousand times, two thousand times, little tiny, small ways. Then when that big thing hits you, you're not scared of it anymore because you've been flexing that muscle for years. And and so you show up. And so many people, it's like we watch the Olympics, right? We're like, gosh, I wish I, yeah, we want that moment on the, on the medal stand. But nobody wants those injuries. Nobody wants the PT appointments. Nobody wants the perfect diet. Nobody wants the, the stadium with nobody in it. When you're running reps up and down the field in the dark, telling your mom and dad, just one more, just one more. Nobody wants to skip birthday parties and go to bed early on the weekend. Right? Nobody, nobody wants all that. Almost nobody. Almost nobody. The ones you see in Tokyo, they wanted that as much as they wanted the podium. And I think it's the exact same way with doing good. If, if we want the big opportunity, we got to start taking those little tiny ones in front of us. And when you do enough of those, then the big one doesn't seem so scary anymore. Cause it's like, you've been training for that your whole life without knowing it.
0: I want to switch gears a little and talk about disruption is your, your first book was disrupting for good. And, and disrupting really is a, it's a powerful word. Um, so, Um, I want to ask you how, how you decided on that as a, as a path and, and what it means to you.
2: Yeah. So I was actually, I got an email one day from a friend who told me about a program. I think it was at USC or UCLA. I can't remember. It was one of those California schools. And he was like, Hey, I saw this and I thought of you. And he wasn't, thinking I was gonna go back to school or anything, but he just thought it was interesting and it was a degree in disruption. It's basically you get like a bachelor's degree in disruption. And I was like, dude, I was like that ties together so much of what I've been doing in my life. Like so many of the ways that I've been taking what was the established norm and sort of saying like, hey, this is okay, but what if we did something even better? or saying hey this this sucks why are we doing this let's do something even better i was like man this is what i've been doing i've been, i've been disrupting like that's that's it it was like a light came on in my head i was like that's that's who i am i'm a disruptor you know it was, it was almost like it gave me a new name I, I had been this guy but without really knowing what i I didn't really fit into any categories and people didn't really know what to do with me um, grew up really religious but religious folks didn't know what to do with me because I wasn't really like religious folks. And then my non-religious friends, they, they knew I grew up really religious, but they knew I wasn't really like most religious <laughs> folks they knew. So they didn't really know what to do with me. And it was just like, that just gave me a new name, man. And there's power in, in names. And I was like, man, that's it. Like, I'm a disruptor. And so I just went on this deep dive, like, what does it mean to disrupt and I ran across Clay Christensen's seminal work around in, innovative disruption mm-hmm. uh, in the late 1990s. and But it was all about business. It was like business disruption, disruption, your industry, you know, everything. And I was like, dude, this is fine. But like, what about nonprofits? What about schools? What about just regular dudes and women that just want to disrupt? Like, wh- wh- where is the space for them? And it was like nobody was talking about that. It was only... It was like overdone in business and never touched anywhere else. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, this is crazy. So I started I started looking for all these stories of people that I felt like had disrupted, where they had seen something that wasn't good and they had shown up and done something about it. And I started finding all these ordinary people, you know, five-year-olds and 80-year-olds and just, I mean, everything in between wealthy and i mean there's this billionaire that nobody's ever heard of i literally can never even remember his name which i think is fitting and he he literally gave away like 6 billion dollars he like spent his whole life giving away his money all of it like literally he doesn't have any money left and it was like nobody's ever heard of this guy and i was like why why has nobody ever heard of this guy It's so much more impressive the what he did with his life and his, his money than so many of these billionaires now that were like I mean Bezos, whatever, dude. Like, I'm not impressed by the little tiny percentage. Like, that's nothing to me, right? We're fawning over that. This cat is literally giving away every penny. I mean, his joke is that he hoped his his last check would bounce. Like (laughs) that was the joke, right? And he literally gave away all of the money he had his whole life. He spent his whole life being a philanthropist till he literally had nothing left. And just in all these other ordinary people, not billionaires, people with no money, Mama Hill in Compton, Los Angeles, who was in public education for like 40 years and then did an after school program out of her 800 square foot house. I mean, it's just like, these are heroes, man. Like these are disruptors that they said, man, it's really hard to be a young person in Compton. And I'm going to do something every day, every afternoon, I'm going to have kids come to my house and I'm going to do something about it. It was like, man, we need more freaking Mama Hills in the world. Like, Her story needs to be out there. Like she is a disruptor. And maybe if somebody sees an 80 year old woman that's showing up in this house that actually was in the process of being foreclosed on before a GoFundMe uh, helped uh, take care of that, man, if she can do it, what are we waiting on? And so I just became really inspired. And that was what kind of uh, inspired that first book was those stories. And it was a very story heavy book of just ordinary people who saw a problem and chose to show up and fix it. And out of that came my definition for a disruptor. And that is someone who's uncomfortable with the truth. So they show up and take action and persist until a new truth is born. Because that's what I found common across all those disruptors. They were uncomfortable with something, they had the guts to show up and they took action they didn't just show up and say, oh, gosh, that's too bad. Hey, take a picture of me in front of this really sad memorial, and I'm going to go on my way. They said, no, I'm going to show up. I'm going to do something, but I'm not going to do something once. I'm going to persist until a new and better truth is, is born. And you can see in those four steps, I mean, all four of them require a different level of commitment, right? I mean, first of all, we have to have truths that make us uncomfortable, which requires some level of introspection and empathy. And and to be frank, we've lost a lot of this in America. We are inundated with so much bad news that we don't even feel. We 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 numb ourselves from feeling, and we we numb ourselves with alcohol and drugs and sex and food and money and busyness. We numb ourselves with busyness just so we don't have to feel anymore. So. That's a tall order for a lot of us. We need to start with feeling. When you get that text message that says 32 people died in a tourist bus crash in Greece, don't just dismiss it. Like, actually think about the fact that those are 32 human beings whose families got a call saying that that dream vacation they were on ended in a nightmare and that they died. Like, just have a moment of, of, of humanity. Like, oh my gosh, that's awful. Like, I, I, that's awful. Most of us don't even do that, to be honest, right? We're so numb. We become so anesthetized to bad news. So, first, we have to feel. Then, we have to be willing to show up when we see a problem and say, Gosh, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to have a problem? Like, okay, you know, you tell me that's a challenge. I've never experienced that challenge. What, what, what does that mean? I want to listen, I want to learn. And then we take action and we gather the data we have and we say, okay, if I were going to use the talents and skills and resources I have to help this become a less of a problem, well, what would that look like? Um, And then you can't just do that one day. This isn't a a service activity. Uh, This isn't a field trip. Uh, This isn't a merit badge. Uh, The persistence is the not-so-secret sauce to transformation. And in every single one of those stories I found, those people worked months and years to create transformation. Mama Hill didn't invite one kid into her Compton house. She invited thousands of kids over decades. Um, You know, the billionaire didn't give away $1,000 or he didn't do a philanthropy day. Uh, and get media attention. He literally spent his whole life giving away his money and making the biggest impact possible. So, so it's, it's, it's playing the long game, you know, it's playing the long game. And so that's really when I became infatuated with disruption and really embraced it as a lifestyle choice, not a cute thing. I put on a resume, not a clever title. I put in my Twitter handle, like I want to be a guide every single day I disrupt and I find those uncomfortable truths. I feel, I show up, I take action. I persist until a new and better truth is born.
1: Your words have so much weight. <laughs> so much weight. Um, that's a, that's a pretty powerful mirror to look into young man. (laughs) Um, I say, and, uh, you know, I'm sitting here going, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm the Prince of positive. I'm this, I'm that. And I sit here and I listen to what you've done in your youth. I probably got shoes older than you and, uh, (laughs) and go, Oh my gosh, I could have been doing that. Hmm. Um, and, and it's like, and I do know, you know, a lot of people, I don't worry about what other people could have been doing when you start talking about the numbness that we feel because we just don't feel anymore. When you start talking about the things that are happening and we're so really, we're, we're basically, a, I mean, anesthetized to life basically. And yeah. it's like I'm sitting here asking myself, what, what do you do about that? You know, hmm. how do you jump into that and the jump is probably a bad word but maybe not necessarily how do you even move into that space because I mean um, that was a dumb question per se but you know moving you, you move into that space but it is it is so it is so powerful and I, I probably want to say that I don't know that I've actually looked at, things in under that lens before if I had the lens got foggy but you wow this is amazing stuff yeah and you've been doing this since you were a young boy younger boy
2: yeah yeah younger yeah like yeah
1: for your average person who listens and feels um, what you're saying here. You know, I I know we talked about, you know, how do they start? You just kind of covered that, but you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, fear in that. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, you can end up dead trying to help somebody uh, in a, in a minor situation in this, in this world. Um, Right. So, For the average person that really wants to help, how do you get started? How do we jump into the
2: disruptor box? Yeah, so I I really feel like, I know this is going to sound oversimplified, but I feel like empathy is such a powerful tool. and But I feel like so many of us, we stop at empathy. So we say, gosh, that's too bad. Like, I really wish that weren't happening. And I feel like for me, compassion is empathy in action. And because it goes beyond just saying, man, that's tough, or I wish, you know, I'm so sorry. And I think that's important. I think we we should empathize. I think that's where it begins. There's this funny little Greek word called splanchnizomai. It's one of my favorite words. And for those who are familiar with this story from the Bible, there's a son who asks for his inheritance early and then leaves his family's house and goes and blows his inheritance, wastes it, and um, comes back and very, very nervous about it. I mean, things got so bad in the story that he's eating the the food out of the pig's trough. And I mean, he's just, he's just, he's gone from top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain pretty quick. Um, but remember, I mean, he he asked his father for his inheritance early. He basically said, dad, I wish you were dead already. Like, I, I need this money, man. I got stuff to do. So he's coming home. And he's, you can imagine what he must be feeling like to come home. Um, sheepish, ashamed, scared sad, embarrassed. And the story says that while he was a long ways off, his father was filled with splunk And it translates as compassion in English, but it's a terrible translation. In Greek, it literally means his father was moved to his bowels. He felt so much love and care for his son who had really kind of screwed him and and made a mockery of the family wealth. He saw him far away and loved him and cared about him so much. It like literally made the dad's stomach hurt like he loved him that much in his bowels, in his gut. He cared. And I think there's this really fascinating opportunity for each of us to ask, like, when is the last time we felt like that about anything? Like, when is the last time we let something move us all the way to where we felt it in our in our guts? It was just like a weight, you know, in our in our stomachs. Like, oh, like because when you feel that when you let yourself feel that, when you make yourself feel that, when you allow yourself to feel that, you're going to respond. No father feels that and then turns around and goes back in the house. You don't, you can't, you physically cannot. Instead, actually, you know what that father did? He ran towards his son, which in that culture, totally a sign of like giving up all of his power in the situation. He literally is sprinting across, like it's the notebook or something, right? Like, just humbles himself completely because he's like, I don't care about any rules right now. All I know is that my son was lost and now he's back home. And I just love this idea of splunk of us feeling something so deeply in our guts that it changes us. It, com- it compels us to mm-hmm. response. And so here's how I would start if I was struggling with this. And I have to reset myself on this sometimes too. Don't get me wrong. This is something, yes, I've done it for a long time, but I get into my own habits and patterns and I get into my own selfishness and get preoccupied with certain things, okay? So here's what I would say. From the moment you wake up one day, just pick one day. Just choose a day. Say, all right, tomorrow or next Tuesday, whatever, it's gonna be my Splunk Miso my day. It's gonna be my gut feeling day. And your job the whole day, we're going to, you're going to suck at this, by the way, your first time, you to be terrible at this, (laughs) but you're going to get better as you go. Your whole job that day, you're you're, going to do all your normal stuff, just like you always do. But from the time you wake up, your goal is to every person you encounter all day long from your family to your colleagues, to the gas station attendant, because the stupid credit card reader won't take your credit card to the person at the grocery store, to the restaurant, everybody you encounter, doctor's appointment, dentist, I don't care, all day long, anytime you encounter somebody, you you consider the full humanity of that other person. And you let yourself marvel at the fact that that person actually has all the same sort of concerns and challenges and pains and woundedness as you do. And it's kind of a miracle that the two of you are just standing there having a conversation with each other. I mean, it's kind of crazy if you think about all the things that had to go right for the two of you to just be standing there having a conversation with each other. And just marvel at the fact that there is another human being that is standing in front of you with all these stories and complex feelings and emotions and needs And you don't even know any of those things about them. You've never taken the time to ask. You've never taken the time to feel their pain with them, to understand what makes them unique or special, to understand what terrifies them, to understand what thrills them, to understand if they run towards roller coasters or away from them, to find out they've got this crazy sixth toe or they can eat seven gallons of ice cream and not get sick. I mean, all these things that make us just so fun and unique and interesting. It's like, We miss all these things and not just the good stuff too the hard stuff, the pain, you know, the stories that make them who they are because they shaped and molded them through pain, which we all have those stories. And just for a day, even if you don't get as far as talking to that person about their pain or even their greatest joys, just marveling at the fact that every human being you encounter that day is fully human. And fully worthy of every bit of respect you could give them. And when we start seeing other people like that, then we begin to care about what makes them who they are. We begin to be interested in their stories. And their stories are going to explain them. And they're going to help us understand them, just like our stories explain us and help us um, understand ourselves and help other people understand us too. So, I, I know it sounds really simple, but that's like the lowest bar I feel like I could offer is you don't even have to take any action that day, right? Just just be willing to think of every person you come across that day as fully human. And as we do that, it begins to soften us and we begin to want to know other people's stories. We begin to care Deeply, you know, and it's funny, guys, because I'll tell you, um, sorry, I'm, I'm, my answers are too long winded, but <laughs> it's it's funny because I have started no. doing more stuff in the business world. And mm-hmm. just in the last few years, I've been invited into the for profit sector more. And um, it's funny because there's things that I do in the way I interact with my colleagues and the way I interact with like partners of ours and customers in the business world It's like, they don't know how to handle me because I don't follow this track. Like I'll be on a call with somebody and I just treat them. Like I, I try really hard to treat anybody and we get on the phone and I'm like, Hey, you know, good morning. They're like, Hey Chris, you know, how's it going? Like, it's going great. And I'm like, Hey, how was your wife's surgery? And they're like, and I'm like, yeah, I just remembered last time we talked, you mentioned that that weekend your wife was having that surgery and they're like, yeah, she's, she's good, man. That was six months ago. You know, she's fine. I was like, oh man, I'm so glad. I thought about her several times that weekend and I was hoping everything went well. And it's like, they don't know what to do with that. It, you know, because it, it, in business, especially, it's like we have these hard lines around, like we can be just nice enough to be polite, but not too nice, you know? And it's like, what? Like, that's so weird. Like, that was a big thing. Like, that was an important thing. Your, you know, your kid had a, an all-star game on Saturday. Like, I shot you an email to ask how the game went because I knew it was, you told me it was a huge game and he was pitching and it was the rivals across town that you'd never beaten, right? And it was like, that struck you as peculiar. But to me, that just is a, it's being a human being. Like, I could tell that really mattered to you. But the funny thing is, I'm not doing this to be better at business, but it makes people love me in business because people are like, oh, that guy is so sincere and he's so genuine. Like, I want to try to make this partnership work. You know, like I could tell that guy, like I trust him. And if he's saying this is a good thing, like I'm going to listen more when he says it. And again, I'm doing it because it's the right way to treat people. But the hilarious thing is it gives me all these opportunities that I would have never had otherwise because it's such a differentiator. And I, I think it's both sad and wonderful that being a human is a differentiator in business <laughs> and that showing <laughs> compassion beyond just trying to get a sale or some sort of slick like, hey, how you doing today? Like like actually showing real concern for the other person's humanity. It's a massive differentiator in, in life. And again, I want to be Equivocally clear, unequivocally clear, I don't do it to be better at business, but I find it fascinating that it gives me opportunities that I never could have had if I just stuck with the shallow shtick um, instead of actually viewing people as the, the valuable, complicated, messy, beautiful people that they are. And I just think it's crazy, man. Uh, but it's, it's proven true time and time again.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think we're in an interesting time for the world to be ready for more people like you. Um, <laughs> you know, one of you know, one of the things that's happening, you're on social media. Um, you know, there's this big woke eruption now, right? So right. it's very popular for large companies to create a wokeness statement. Yeah, right. they're, they're not calling it that, but we support our LGBTQ plus staff. You know, right. We we support Black Lives Matters, but where's their money going? And you know, right. you know, is it going to legislators who are um, writing good policy for them and bad policy for the people they claim to support in their you know in their statements? Right. Um, and you know, they're they're looking at blocks of people as potential customers. They're not looking at people as people, even right. though, even though their words say that. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I think what we need is, is, you know, more of what you're talking about, just, Hey, you know, there's Chris, there's Kelvin. there. They weren't born in these little zoom boxes that I'm looking at. They, right. they, they were once babies. They, they hadn't an, an instinct to grasp and not much else. and, they had people around them who were trying their best to show them how to live a good life, and now they're, you know, taking the the best of what they learned and the worst of what they learned, and trying to trying to do their best with it, and you know, pass the best that they know on to their kids and on to other people, and try to try to leave the world just a little better. And you know, that's all we can really do. Um, but you get to start with, you know. The, the world doesn't get a little better with big grand gestures. It gets a little better, right. by, you know, you helping the guy down the street and right. me helping the next door neighbor. and
2: <laughs> Right. Which starts by noticing the guy right. down the street, which starts by noticing the next door neighbor. Like just let me give you a tiny example. Instead of us being frustrated that our neighbor's lawn is overgrown and doesn't look good. We just mow it when we mow ours, because we figure they must be having a really hard time right now. And there's probably some reason they haven't mowed their lawn. Instead of being annoyed that our neighbor left their trash can out overnight after it had already been picked up, we go ahead and pull it in because we think, gosh, they must be so busy or just uh, preoccupied with something else that they didn't even get a chance to pull back in their trash can. I'll just do it for them. Because I mean, surely that's what I would want them to do for me. And I think it's interesting to use that example of the corporations because I actually think even your example, while it's accurate on the, on the where they're giving money side, even the giving money has become a cop-out, right? Like what I wanna know is, is that CEO, are those people in power, especially if they're not part of the LGBTQ community, especially if they're not black, are they actually sitting down with people in those communities, in their own workforce and saying like, listen, what's it like to work here? Like, like honestly, what's it like to be a black person who works here? Because I don't know. And I, I've, I've not experienced that. What's it like to be a gay person who works here? Like what's different about your experience with our customers and with our clients and with our team, what's different for you than, than me? And, and I think out of that knowledge, inviting those people to become part of the solution with you instead of just brandishing sort of that power, like, Hey, we, we believe in this, like, that's great. Like, I'm glad, but I want belief to be followed with action and activity and not just donations, but actual sincere empathy. I mean, I can't tell you how many black friends I have that when I've really dug in with them on their experience of being a black person in America, that they've said to me, You're literally the first white person who's ever done this my entire life. And I'm like, No, I'm like, There's no way. There's no way. There's no way. And they're like, No, literally, I've never had a white person say to me, I want to understand what it feels like to be black in America. Can you please tell me that? Like, they're like, I've never. Like I'm more likely to have a white friend say that um, I'm not like those black, other black people, which is like the most racist, absurd thing I've ever heard. I can't believe anybody would say that. But for them to say that they're more likely to get that statement, almost like I don't need to ask you what it feels like to be black in America because you're not really black. What an unbelievably awful, horrific thing to say to somebody, but for them to say that they get that more than somebody actually asking their real legitimate valid, that's absurd to me. And it tells me it's not an anomaly, that that's not unusual, that that's not, it just hasn't happened to be the people that I've talked to, that that's an experience. I'll tell you this, sorry, I'm so chatty. All right, listen, let me tell you you guys, I love this story though. Right after, this is terrible, terrible and beautiful, uh, which is so much of life, right? Beautiful and messy. So right after Ahmaud Arbery um, was shot, murdered um, by those two vigilantes in Georgia, uh, I was on a run. And I, I'm, a, I'm an avid runner. I've run 27 marathons. I love running. I just done a time trial. Uh, 5k at my local track just by myself. And I was doing like a cool down a couple miles afterwards, just in a little neighborhood that was next to the track, not my neighborhood. I'd driven my car to the track. So I was, I was out of my, you know, it wasn't my place, if you will. And I'm, I'm, I'm driving, I'm, I'm running it's seven o'clock in the morning. Nobody's around. And there's one single black man who I think, based on the tools and stuff he had, he was putting gutters on a couple new construction houses in the in the neighborhood. <clears throat> so I run by him. He's a little older than me, probably late 40s, early 50s, and I told it said good morning to him. He said good morning back, and I just passed by. And and all of a sudden, I just had this like, I just had this feeling. <clears throat> just, I mean, 50 yards past him, 100 yards past him. I, it's like without even thinking, I turned around and ran back. And he's still at the back of his truck there getting his tools. And I said, hey, I, said, I know this is really weird. And I'm sorry if this makes you uncomfortable. But I said, I, I didn't thinking a lot about Ahmaud Arbery the last few days. I've been like, kind of can't think about anything but that. And the irony of this situation of being in a neighborhood I'm not familiar with, you're doing construction on, or you're doing some construction on a new house. You're black, I'm white. I said, I just want to, I just felt like compelled to come back. And I just want to say to you, like, I'm like getting emotional telling this story. I said, I just want to tell you that I see you as a black man. And I don't know what it feels like to see stories like I'm odd. But I know it's probably pretty hard And I just want you to know that I'm committed to seeing you and other people like you better. And the guy just like immediately gets tears in his eyes. And he's just like, man, thank you. And it was like, that was the end of the conversation. And I ran on and he went on to do his job. And it was just like in that moment, it was one of those moments where i feel like this is what it feels like to be a human being and i think we think we know what it feels like to be a human being until we actually experience it and then we're like oh my gosh that is what it feels like to be a human being <clears throat> and and i didn't solve any problem for that guy that day i didn't fix anything for him i didn't make life better for Black men or women in America, there's a, so much work still to be done. But I think he felt seen in that moment in a way that he might have never, ever felt seen before, especially by a random middle aged white guy running through a neighborhood. And I just, man, I'm so, I believe so much that there is so much power in our embracing our shared humanity and speaking those uncomfortable truths to one another. I mean, that was, he could have gotten offended by something that I said. He could have said, like, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. And, and I still think that in that moment, what I did was the right thing. Like, he, he, not, not, be, not because he would have been wrong to get offended. He, he could have whatever experience of those words for me that he wants. But I needed to say, I see you in that moment. I needed to, to to name that there was this really hard thing happening in our country with white people and black people. And that like, I had empathy for him in that and that what it meant to be him. And so, man, I just think there's so much power in our stories and in our naming truths to one another and our listening to one another and our trying to understand where that other person's coming from. And that was just one of those rare moments where it feel like I got to feel the full weight of that in such a beautiful way. And based on his response, I would imagine it's a story he also remembers and will probably remember for a long time. And I'm, I'm really grateful that he received my words um, in the, in the tone and in the graciousness with which I intended them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That happened. Um, just up the road from me. I'm in Savannah, Georgia. So, you know, Brunswick's about 45 minutes from here. Um, so, you know, we felt it in the running community here and, yeah, you know, we have that, you, you and I have that, you know, you talk about privilege and, you know, th- this is privilege. You are able to, you know, black guy didn't see anything wrong with you running by him doing construction. Right. Two weeks ago, I was, I was, you know, running early morning and uh, it was about quarter to seven and I ran, I ran through an arrest. Mm. There were five cruisers. They were yeah. um, arresting a, a young black man, probably 16, 17 years old. I just ran right down the middle of the road.
2: Just, mm. Hi, how
0: you doing? And they just let me go. Right. You know, they just waved at me and I, I kept running. Um, I, I think that, had I been a young black man, I might have been asked to find a new route or to um, hang on a second. Do you know these people? Right. Nothing. Just wave and see you later. What are you doing here at you know six forty on a on a Friday morning?
2: Yep.
1: Yeah.
0: So I know we're coming up on time. <laughs> um, so you know. We've got two two things toward the end here, just kind of housekeeping. Um, one, is there anything that uh, you wanted to come on and talk about that we haven't gotten to? Um, and the other thing, uh, let yeah. us know where you like to hang out a lot, where can people find you?
2: Yeah, so I feel great. About everything we covered today, I hope you guys do. I feel like I rambled a bit, but
0: yeah. Well, I I think we always like it. I think we always like it when our guests talk more than we do.
2: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, that's good because I definitely do. So, (laughs) I you guys asked some great questions. I mean, honestly, asked some questions I haven't ever been asked before, and I've done a fair amount of these. So, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness um, that you guys had in your questions, and hopefully, my answers landed with will land with folks. Um, So where I hang out. So you can find me on the various social media platforms. Uh, My handle is at Disruption Chris and uh, LinkedIn, just Christopher Field. And uh, my website is meetchrisfield.com. Do quite a bit of speaking. And so it's one of my favorite things to do. You can probably tell from my, conversation today. I love telling stories. I love trying to inspire people. So I was just in Arkansas yesterday. Last week I was in Missouri. So things are finally starting to pick up a little bit after COVID and hopefully they'll stay down. I know things are starting to ramp up again with COVID, unfortunately. But but yeah, if uh if there's anything I can ever do to be helpful for anybody or with anybody, I'm I'm happy to do anything I can. So I'd love for people to reach out and we can connect.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for being here and uh, we will uh, shoot you an email when this is up.
2: Awesome. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Right. Thank, you. thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey,
0: thanks for listening to show notes and more at jkwdpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends. And We will see you next week. A Better Humanhood production.